Okay, here we go. Um, hey, if you want to, just as a side note, if you want to see stuff from Israel and you haven't seen it, I'm going to do the Israel slide Sunday at 10. So if you want to, for Bible study, because it gets close to Bible study, people are traveling, and um, some people have asked to see them, and it, it's probably just the easiest time. So if you want to come and see, I'll also have videos of all my children in their Christmas pageants, of Kirby's birthday parties, ages 30 through 33, which is as old as she is. Ooh, I got, I got close to the edge there, and then suddenly I just came right back. So, um, but anyway, if you want to see Israel stuff, I'll try to pack it into uh, 45 minutes or something. There's the vicar. Just give it anywhere right there. You're a fine man. Thanks for keeping me from making bad mistakes. Let's pray. Lord God, Heavenly Father, you've revealed to us that heaven and earth shall pass away. We beg you to keep us steadfast in your word. Guard us from all sin. Preserve us from all temptation. Don't let our hearts be overcharged by the season with the many cares of this life. But at all times, in watchfulness and prayer, help us to faithfully await the return of your Son and joyfully cherish the expectation of heaven. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. Okay, so um, Advent is always weird, especially for pastors, especially when we follow the liturgical tradition, because you never hear about any of the people in the Christmas story. It's kind of kind of strange, actually. And that's because, um, you know, as Advent developed, you know, the, as the church year developed, the whole idea of the church year was they'd spend half the year telling you about Jesus and half the year telling you about you. So the first half of the church year is about Jesus. The second half of the church year is about you living in the image of Jesus. Follow me. The first half is about Jesus, what he says, what he does. And the second half is tries to explain to you what it means if you follow Jesus into what he says and what he does. A mild trouble with that is the end of your story is the last day, either your death or when Jesus comes back or the mind calendar, whichever comes first, okay? <laughs> so, you know, so the end of your story is your death, but it's really interesting because in the lectionary, the first reading for the year is Palm Sunday. You would expect the first reading to be something like, the angel coming to Mary or the angel coming to Zechariah. And some days, some years, once or twice since I've been here in 15 years, we've fiddled the readings at least so you could remember who the characters were. But there is this <clears throat> strange thing of how the church here tries to put together the last day with the first day, and they do that in the person of Jesus. It works really well, but the casualty is that you often don't hear a lot about <clears throat> the characters who are in the Christmas pageant. So <clears throat> one of the things... You read one chapter, and uh, it wasn't enough, so I'm going to push you through a second chapter today as well, uh, because there's, you know, it would just be nice to get all the characters on the page before you go. So I read ahead. We'll read a little bit out. You'll know some stuff, maybe some stuff you won't know. I don't know how much you know about all this stuff, so we'll just have a go at it, okay? So um, the first thing is, is Christmas is nuts. It's nuts at your house. It's nuts at my house. And, you know, take, you know, take comfort. It was nuts for... Uh, the Holy Family, too. So maybe you're all the Holy Family. Maybe that's how it works out. Because it was crazy. And you have to understand how crazy it was in order to appreciate, you know, peace on earth, goodwill to men. I mean, you have to understand that the world was absolutely nuts, even though Jesus came at a very fortuitous time. So he comes at this time when the Romans sort of rule things. So in one sense, there's calm. In another sense, people were still nuts. I mean, it was the, you know, it was the, it was the cleanest, dirty shirt kind of scenario where, you know, it wasn't fantastic, but it was at least <clears throat> manageable. So, um, 
I read you this morning in the, Joseph often gets credit for this, and partly what I want to do is try to, you know, although Joseph doesn't, you don't hear a lot about St. Joseph, um, you know, but at least one of the places you do hear about Joseph is in the naming of a child. So if you've got a Bible, you know, just spin it open. We'll just look at a couple of different things. But one is Matthew, and then uh, we'll look at Luke too. But Matthew and Luke tell the story differently. Matthew tells it for Jews, and he does a big, he makes a big deal out of prophecy being fulfilled. Luke tells it for Gentiles, so he does a big deal about putting extra history in. That's why Luke and Acts is about twice as long than anything else we've got. But you have this very strange uh, story of Mary being pregnant and then Joseph having to react to that and the angel coming to her and saying, um, remember the angel comes to Mary and says, you know, hail, and she's greatly afraid. Uh, I mean, people get frightened when angels appear. Uh, and that's normal stuff. If you bump into an angel, you know, you can, you know, it'd be curious to know. One of the fun things to know will be in your, you know, on the last day when you get to re-meet people that you thought were people that were really angels. That will be interesting. Um, so when you meet them, maybe you don't know that you, you, you've met them, but when you do actually bump into them as angels, it's a bit frightening. So they always kind of say, um, don't be afraid, which means I'm not here to destroy you. I'm here to help you out. And then this great thing, um, Matthew 1, 20 and 21, the angel appears to him in a dream, uh, sort of a normal way of communicating in the Middle East. Joseph, son of David, and the son of David is important, which means we're on the same side and I love you. Son of David means you're a good Jew, you're a Hebrew, you're an Israelite, you're from David, from Abraham, from Moses, from Noah, from Adam. That's why Matthew began with a genealogy. He told you, here's the family tree, you know, Ancestry.com, there it all is. And then now he says, you know, all is well. Don't be afraid, you're a son of David. Don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife. That which is conceived first from the Holy Spirit, she will bear a son. And then the big thing, the father names a child. You will call his name Jesus. And then what we read today in devotions, you also heard that the angel said to Mary, his, he will be named Jesus. So Joseph has the responsibility, call his name Jesus. Mary has the responsibility to accept that name, call his name Jesus. And as you read, you know, in Hebrew it's a play on words which is, um, hey, I was just talking about your calm personality, okay? I just gave you all kinds of good press about your calm personality. <sighs> she is helping. Um, she's great. She does hope. She's a calm, she's great, uh, well, well-natured kid. So this whole thing of called his name Jesus, which is meant to focus you on what Jesus is all about because his name actually means that Yahweh, the name literally means Yahweh saves or Yahweh saves you, but Yahweh saves you or your, and then the question is, what is he saving you from? And you got sort of a note there. Hey, Rita, you can. She's fine. She's, you know. I know she. Hey, this is not the first day I've been heckled. You know, Saint <laughs> John. It's all going to work out, and it won't be the last. That's exactly right. So you have this, uh, you have this great thing where he tells you what you're saved from. Now. Um, this discussion of what you get saved from is sort of interesting, but I think you probably know this, right? There's sort of this double sort of salvation, which is the children of Israel are in Egypt. They're slaves. They don't have any God. They don't have any land. They're not even considered people. The Lord brings them out across the desert 
across the wilderness to the promised land, says, this is your spot. I'll be your God. You've got a land. I'll send you a king. I'll always be there for you. That sort of rings hollow when um, you're under the oppression of the Babylonians, for example, or in this case, under the oppression of the Romans. You know, you don't really own the land. You know, you don't really get to decide about your gods. Or there's a lot of pressure on you if you do. So in one sense, they have this notion that Jesus will come and chase the Romans away. And of course, that was a strong impulse in Jesus' time, you know, to get rid of the Romans. That's why Masada was built. That's why the zealots were there. That's why the people moved to the desert in Qumran. That's, that's why um, Pilate would come to the fortress during Passover. There was always this political tension that we want our land back. But you'll notice um, that in some ways the angel redefines what Jesus is. Politics is nice, you know, and, and since we've been back from Israel, some people have asked, you know, what do I think about the land and how that all works out? I don't think anything about it, to be honest with you. Um, we don't have this evangelical bent that Israel has to be restored in order for Jesus to come again. Because, as I'm going to say in just a minute, Jesus is Israel. Wherever, wherever Jesus is, that's Israel. Part of what happens is, is Jerusalem is a prophecy, the Ark of the Covenant is a prophecy, the people of Israel is a prophecy, Mary herself is a prophecy. All those prophecies are fulfilled in Jesus, and wherever Jesus is, that's where Israel is, that's the presence of God, and that's, you see, why the Eucharist is the center of your life. The Eucharist is the Temple Mount. The Eucharist is to you what the Temple Mount is to the Jews. Okay? That's why the Eucharist is the center of life. The land, it matters, but it doesn't matter anymore because Jesus fulfilled it in the way that the Passover matters, but it doesn't matter anymore because Jesus fulfilled it. It matters in a sense. It was good for something. It was a prophecy. It was a holy thing, but it takes its fulfillment in Jesus. So wherever Jesus is, that's the center of the universe, which is why you build your church around the altar, why you adore the Eucharist, why the Eucharist is important. You know, Jesus is here. The Temple Mount is here. And that all gets wrapped up in the angel when he names him and he says, call his name Jesus because he'll save you from your sins. Your primary trouble is that your sins send you straight to hell. Your, your, your problem is not primarily that the Romans or the Babylonians have run you out of town, although that's a great difficulty. Your primary issue is that Jesus will save you from your sins. Okay, So that's why if you've got really big sins, when Jesus says, pray in my name, you know, oh Jesus, please forgive me, is a great, uh, that's a great prayer as opposed to when you're under attack by something demonic, oh Lord Almighty, you need power at that point, um, you know, save me. Uh, and all that, when you're sick, it's oh great physician. So you get the first name, call his name Jesus, he'll save his people from their sins. He actually tells you what he diagnoses you in the name, you're a sinner, that's your primary thing. The other things matter, but they're not primary. The primary thing is your sin, and congratulations, Jesus will come and forgive you. Now, you knew all that, right? That's just all background. That's all normal stuff that you know, okay? Any questions just about that? It's just good to always remember that. The angel tells Joseph how to name him. Joseph obeys. The angel tells Mary that he'll be named. Mary obeys, and sort of life goes on. Is that Okay. Um, my only trouble is, and actually we talked with the past, we had pastors in here yesterday for a couple hours for the circuit thing. One of the really interesting things I've found is that um, 
and it's growing in intensity. Uh, first it was, if you told people that they were sinful, um, they would just sort of move on. But what's interesting, kind of the shift is, what's, what's happening is, is that um, there is very little that anybody recognizes as sinful anymore. So there's a little bit of a shift going on. It used to be um, people, the church had sway because it would tell people you're sinful and people would receive that. Then there was a time when you told people they were sinful and that would make them angry. Um, Now people just sort of move on to the next church or the next place where people don't tell them they're sinful. That's the reason there's not confession or crosses in many modern churches. But actually you can feel the sway pushing the other way, which is things that we would have uh, normally in the past considered sinful. Now we're sort of mainstream. I offer Fifty Shades of Grey as your first, uh, not as your next book to read, but as your... Uh, as your, you know, sort of mainstream, um, yes, yes, exactly right, all you poor bored housewives. So, um, you know, it's, a, it's really interesting, the, the push is coming in a different direction. You know, I don't have any apocalyptic prediction for what that means for the church, but I do observe in the church how... Um, it's very odd to be a pastor to say that's sinful and then for people to say, no, it's not. Or for, for, people, for people to say, if you wouldn't label this as a sin, then people wouldn't suffer so much. So things are all being turned on their head because the church has now become, becomes, by naming things that are moral and immoral, the church has become, is being seen as the aggressor. That will not go well for the church in the future. Sort of, there's a, it's not unlike the, it's not unlike, you know, the presidential debate where, where people tell people what you are so often that that becomes your definition. It's very interesting how this works. The church has become, um, by naming sin, the church is now seen as the aggressor. Now, what's interesting about us is we don't have an interest in being, especially being Lutheran. This is actually one of the great things about Lutheranism. We don't, um, while we speak, uh, this is sinful, you know, we're not the sort of people who then go out and beat people up or shoot them or kill them, right? So um, it's just going to be interesting. It's going to be, we're, in a, we're in the middle of a shift, and um, <coughs> it'll be interesting to see where the shift takes us. But the shift goes right back to the name of Jesus. Call his name Jesus because he'll save his people from their sins. If there's, no more sins to, if there's no more sins, then there's nothing you need to be saved from which then, of course, is to be godless. Does that make sense? So it's coming. Watch it. We're also becoming... The defenders, did you say? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, this is very much how it happens, which is if you're, if you're labeled an aggressor, then that gives people license to attack you. Because we're only defending ourselves. Well, what happens then is, um, see, but the question has to be, what are defending yourselves against what? This is why the whole notion of hate speech is so interesting. Because it is, in fact, we do, in fact, know that words change people. If, if words didn't change people, there wouldn't be advertising on television. The whole notion that people aren't affected by television, by violence on television, by words on television is nonsense. The simple proof of that is people pay for advertising billions of dollars a year. 
right? Okay, so in one sense, uh, words, in fact, do matter. The interesting thing, though, is that we don't feel like the great thing about being Lutheran is, Lutheran, words are resistible. So I can say to you, you're deeply wrong, or that's very sinful, but I don't feel the need to punch you in the nose. And that separates us from kind of the evangelical fringe. It's, it separates us from people. It just separates us in a whole bunch of different ways. However, we're, because we're part of the collective church, we will end up suffering for that. Because once you're labeled the aggressor, then people have a right to self-defense, Right? So if they can put you in the spot of aggressor, they also put you in the spot of victim eventually. And that was the very interesting part where he wrote about Desmond Tutu. That was a very, very, very interesting thing. Um, you know, and of course that was a, a greatly troubled, one of the most heart-wrenching things. I watched a little bit of the, you know, this thing that happened in South Africa where people, if people would come and confess their crimes... They, it, was the most, it was the most remarkable thing because it was a churchly thing and done in a political way, but you did it because there was no other way out. So um, there were these tribunals where people would come and they would say, I chopped off a man's head. I and my friends put tires around a man and lit him on fire. I, and people from all directions, black, white, and everything in between. And if you were willing to confess, you got amnesty. But I can remember, I didn't watch much of it because it was too hard to watch. But I do remember, Tutu was quite, actually quite a man, quite strong. But I do remember there was a point um, where he just laid his head down on the table and started to weep. It was just like, you know, it was just too much. You know, you just can't, you just, it was just too much, uh, the stuff that was being confessed about what was done to other people. Anyway, you'll need to mark this because, uh, you know, just if you see it coming, you know, don't be surprised. Yes, please. Europe is ahead of us, um, um, but so you have more. But Christians, it's it's interesting. Well, watch the news and see where attacks come from. You know, Europe is a little bit of ahead of us. They haven't believed in anything for. 50 or 60 years or 100 years, so since the French Revolution or whenever, pick your time, right? The French Revolution was seminal for that, but also the World Wars, because the World Wars were fought there, and that changed them in a way that it didn't change us. But you do see attacks, especially on Jewish people, unfortunately, in, in many ways. Um, but Christians sometimes, in Africa, Christians are suffering greatly from this. You know, they're seen as, as the oppressors, so... Well, anyway, that was, that was all stuff I thought you would know already, so I didn't really spend too much, I didn't mean to spend too much time with that. Um, next thing is about the wise men. Uh, you know, the wise men normally, do you, I mean, did you know the names of the wise men? Casper, Melchior, and Balthazar. Come on, Casper, Melchior, and Balthazar. Then Casper, like the friendly ghost, Melchior, and Balthazar. But th- we don't know that there's three of them, we just know they showed up. Usually they're said to be three because... Um, you know, you have three gifts. The gifts were, as you know, gold, frankincense, and myrrh, because you've all been to Christmas program. And the gold, frankincense, and myrrh were for what? Gold because you're a king, so you bring gold. You're rich. Yeah. Frankincense is, you know. Yeah, right. Often used for incense in, often used for incense in the church. Cleansing. And frankincense, and myrrh is for? When you died, yeah, that's what they use. So in the, in the gifts is the prediction. You know, the king who 
brings us the king who's also a priest and ultimately dies a sacrifice. So gold, frankincense, and myrrh, the church is kind of always seen as the significance of the gifts, you know, sort of tell, again, pro- prophesy the story of Jesus' life, that he'll um, live and he'll die. Yes, go ahead. Yeah, the, the, it's, not, it's not clear that there were actually three of them. They're just three gifts. They could have traveled in a pack. We don't know how many there were. Actually, he argues that they come from Arabia. I didn't, you know, it's interesting, but, you know, it doesn't make too much difference to me whether they come from Persia or Arabia. But what is interesting is that people watch the sky and could tell the signs. And so they watch for prophecy and knew when things happened. Um, my question for you is why they end up in Bethlehem rather than Jerusalem. Because Jerusalem's the center of the universe. Why do they end up in Bethlehem? But they end up in Jerusalem first. Yes, they do. So what, what, are you, what are you supposed to learn from that? Or what do you think that, what do you think, what, 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 what's it trying to teach you? Right, good. And, and, pre, and Bethlehem is David's hometown. Just as an aside, our, um, when we were in Israel, we had Arabs who, the driver and the guide were both Arabs. When we said, to, and that one was Catholic, one was Orthodox. We said to the Catholic, to the, so this is to Iyad, the guide, how long has your family been Christian? And he said, for 2,000 years. It was a very interesting answer. He says, from the beginning, like from the beginning, for 2,000 years. So he was from Bethlehem. That was his hometown. He, so he, his, basic, his basic presupposition is, hey, we were Christians ever since the little baby Jesus got born in Bethlehem. We're the center of the universe, which in some sense is true. And so you have this shift from the reason you have the shift from Jerusalem to Bethlehem, part of it is, is because that's David's hometown. But part of it is you're supposed to see that the divine presence, the divine presence where God is located is wherever Jesus is. So you get a sh- slight shift, you know, down and to the left because now things are moving. <laughs> Go ahead. Yeah? Yeah, there's a, there's a long tradition, of course. There are not very many left. In fact, even in Bethlehem, there's not very many Christians left. Most of, most of them have left. So the oppression has been so hard in Iraq and Iran, and now even in Syria, um, and certainly in the West Bank, there's, there aren't as many Christians left anymore. They just go other places. It's too hard to live, you know? Yes, please. Yeah, it's a different kind of, uh, it's a different kind of Jesus. So good. Now, you know, um, if you have Orthodox friends especially, uh, the Magi come from a long way. So the, they come from a long way, and they arrive in a, Epiphany. You remember there's a significant period of time, a couple of years, uh, between the time that we conflate the story because we only have one day. So we got to have everybody there the same day. It's like your relatives. They just show up for a very short period of time, and then they scatter. But of course, yes, but of course, you know, it's probably a year or two before they, it's, it's a year or two before they, you know, it's hard to know. There's some, some significant amount of time, a year or two before the, before the wise men actually show up. Uh, and that's what Epiphany is. That's the 12th day of Christmas. So you remember the 12 days of Christmas start with Christmas, and then it's the 12 following days, so 24 to 6. You know, you have six days and then six days. Those 12 days of Christmas, you know, and the gifts were given after Christmas during the 12 days, and the culmination is when the Gentiles... The wise men show up the 12th day of Christmas, which is the day of Epiphany, right? So the 12 days of Christmas are after Christmas, and um, it ends with Epiphany. And then 
This is the common season, if you have especially Orthodox friends. This is when the priest comes to your house uh, and blesses your house, does a house visit and blesses. And you often see, have you been to houses where there's chalk? Chalk yeah. above the door? Yeah. Have you seen that? Were they? In my apartment yep, complex, good, yeah. Yep, sometimes they chalk a cross on the, on the door top. Sometimes they write, you know. I've even seen the names of the wise men written across the top of a door. So the priest comes and visits your house, blesses your house, and, um, you know, and, and leaves a mark. Now, one of the things that would be interesting, I mean, one of the things I'm trying to figure out how to do is try to visit all of you. Um, now, one of the problems is, is, well, first you'll be frightened. So if I call the Rosenwinkles and I'll say, hey, I want to come over and see you, what will they think? What have we done? Right? What have we done? And you're, uh, yeah, exactly. That would be your kid. What have we done? So I've been trying to think about it. But one of the things I've been thinking about, if we can pull this off, would be to come and, so what we would say to you is, uh, there'd be two questions. One would be, um, how can we pray for you? And then how can we bless you? This is very common in other this is very, at your house, I would say, and what kind of beer is there just, just been made? So there'll be, other, there'll be other possibilities. Yes, exactly. If you could bless me back in this particular way, it would be, it would be a very nice, nice thing. Her, her husband makes great beer. Uh, so uh, it's, I mean, really great beer. Like, they could bottle it and be rich, but they're too humble for that. So, um, you, know, one of the things that, you know, one of the things we've been thinking about is how we could do that and sort of institutionalize that as a kind of a normal thing where we would come to you and say, you know, how can we pray for you? And then how can we bless you? Which is a very common thing. I mean, one of the things a pastor is meant to do, and you're meant to do for each other, really, is not only to pray, but also to, not only to pray as in, I'm in trouble, pray for me, but also to bless you, you know. You put in numbers, you put the name on people and you bless them. Yes, please. If anybody wants a new what? Did you say wait? Oh, to lose weight. I thought you said, do they want a new wig? Does anybody in the church want a new wig? I'm like, does anybody want a new wig? Lose weight is slightly more applicable. Yeah, there'll be more takers for that. Yes, there are. They all have your last name? Really? All right. <laughs> Someday, all right, next time in Germany, that's where we're going. There's got to be a Bad Schrott somewhere. So that'll be the deal. Yeah, that's what we could do. Um, okay, so I'm, I'm to three. I've given you number four already, which is Jesus is Jerusalem, which is the divine presence. If you come Sunday, uh, one of the most fascinating things in Israel was going to the Temple Mount and seeing this. Um, it's really interesting that there's this kind of, as you're waiting in line, there's this description of what the Jews believe, where they basically say, this spot is the center of the universe, and the divine presence is always here, which actually is what Christians would say as well. It's the mo- it was the most interesting sign. And we would, while we don't usually locate the Garden of Eden there, they do, um, pretty much from Abraham on, everything they said w- is true. We would say, this is where Abraham sacrificed Isaac. This is where the Ark of the Covenant was. This is where um, the temple was built. This is where God promises ever to be. You know, the only line we would add is, until Jesus comes and, and receives that divine glory as, and then you hear Jesus saying it, destroy this temple and in three days I'll build it up. So the t- temple from the Temple Mount 
is absorbed into the body and blood of Jesus. You just can't overestimate how important the fleshly presence of Jesus is. He becomes, he becomes the center of the universe. This is why the Eucharist is such a big deal. I don't know, I don't know why, you know, Lutherans rebel against this sometimes because they're still kind of thinking in terms of the Reformation. Priests didn't preach. And um, <laughs> priests didn't preach, and so, you know, Lutherans so emphasized the preaching, but they did it as Lutherans sometimes, often, sometimes do, which is they do it at the expense of something else. It wasn't, isn't preaching or the Eucharist, it's preaching toward the Eucharist. Hey, here's the thing I learned. Sometimes, when good old Pastor Gandy used to chant the, chant the verbal, which I thought was gorgeous, um, People would complain that that's too Catholic. Do you know what I've learned? This is true. I just learned this. Do you know that? And I, now, when I reflect on it, I find that it's true. I've never seen a priest chant the verba. I've never seen a priest do that. Do you know that Catholics don't do this? Test this thesis. Catholics actually don't do it. This is what I learned this week. And Lutherans chanted it in rebellion against Rome. <laughs> this is true because what did the priest used to do? He used to say it silently, only ever speak it. And usually silently. So to be the greatest anti-Catholic thing was to chant the verba because it was allowed so everybody could hear it. But of course, this lot, then when somebody does that, says, that's so Catholic, which just tells you how much, how little we know about ourselves. Isn't that interesting? Uh, our Father, our, our Father, um, our Lord Jesus Christ on the night he was betrayed. Yeah, the words of institution, the verb, verba, Latin words, the words, but words, big W words. Isn't that interesting? So the most Lutheran thing you can do is chant the words of institution. And now I have to think back. I've never actually, while, while priests chant things around it, like the prayers and all the bit leading up, I actually have to say I can't ever recall where I've seen a priest chant it. So now when you watch Christmas after, you know, when you go home and watch the Vatican on TV at midnight because you can't sleep, uh, you know, take a look, Okay. They are on top of each other. I asked our guide, I said, do you know how we're like visiting, we couldn't go in the mosque, but we're visiting the Jewish quarter and we're visiting the the Temple of the Mount, which is Muslim controlled. I go, I don't see anybody except Christians at the church. I go, does anyone even come here out of curiosity? And he said, no. Like, he he reacted to me like, why are you asking such a stupid question? He goes, they don't believe in Jesus. I go, I know, but I don't believe in Allah or that I, you know, I'm in the Jewish quarter like learning about their culture and religion. And he goes, no. I said, that's amazing to me that people don't have a cross interest. Yeah, Yeah, right. What is going on here? There's millions of Christians that come to this spot and they think that Jesus is the Messiah and none of them venture over there. Yeah, I mean, the simple thing, the simple answer is we accept them and they don't accept us. And, of course, they, they take offense at the fact that we... You remember this famous thing where I gave a lecture at Princeton? Did I, I'm sure I told you this story. I gave a lecture about... I gave a lecture at Princeton once when I was there um, about prophecy fulfilled in Christ. And the first question was a woman who stood up and said, how dare you steal the Old Testament from the Jews? <laughs> Which isn't really a question now that I think about it. It was more of a, like... You know, it was utterly illicit, cause, and they saw that as offensive, that I'd co-opted. And you see, you see how that mindset is, Ben, that that doesn't belong to you. That's not your... Yeah, very interesting. Um, 
Yeah, yeah, aggressor, exactly. <laughs> believe me, at Princeton, believe me, you just have to be a white male to be an aggressor at Princeton. That's a different, that's a whole different deal. I should tell you another, someday I'll tell you another story about, I once quoted Plato. I only quoted Plato where he said women don't have souls, so they're not really human. I only quoted the text. I didn't, I didn't make the assertion, I only quoted the text. as a, That set the seminar off for about half an hour. I mean, that, that, it was like the time stood still. All I was doing was quoting the fact that somebody had written this once. I wasn't making the argument that women didn't hit, weren't human because they didn't have souls. I only quoted it as a historical reference. My goodness, could have been the end of me. Um, Herod, the fifth bit. Now, um, you know, this was actually a great description. This is not my description, but this is a great description. Now, you have to remember there's Herod, and then there are Herods, Right? So, and part of the problem, part of the problem we have trouble keeping the Christmas story straight is we confuse our Herod. So Herod the Great is in charge when Jesus is born. Then when he dies, he has three sons, and they basically just cut the Holy Land in three parts, north, middle, and south, okay? So Herod the Great was the big builder, and he was also the crazy one. He was the one of whom, um, you know, Caesar said, I'd rather be his his." Now, it's, it's written two ways. I'd rather be his dog or rather be his pig. It depends where, how you read it, but I'd rather be his dog than his son because he had ten wives, and you know he killed them regularly. He had a lot of sons, and he strangled his two favorite sons because he was paranoid about them. He's afraid they were going to take over. I mean, the guy was a madman, but he also he could get it all done. One of the greatest lines, this is actually fun. Open your, open your, did you bring your book? I can read it to you if you didn't, but it was like, this is, it's so much fun. Um, let see if I can find it. So basically, I mean, you've seen Elizabeth Taylor, Anthony and Cleopatra, right? So um, Herod sided with Anthony and Cleopatra. Guess what? Um, they lost. And uh, so, and of course, you know, then the snake and the poison and who does what and all that. This is page 57. So basically, Herod... Um, sides with Anthony and Cleopatra. They, they fight against Octavius. Octavius wins the war. So then Herod, I mean, this talk about chutzpah. He, you know, he goes to Octavius and he says, I mean, this is in the second paragraph, he says, Herod admitted that he'd remained loyal to Anthony even in defeat. So he comes to the guy and he basically says, I was your enemy and I did everything I could to defeat you. And then the famous quote, what I ask you to consider, not whose friend, but what a good friend I was. Isn't that a great quote? And Octavius is taken in by that, and he says, okay, you can still be king. So he basically doesn't say, don't look at the fact that I wasn't your friend. Look at the fact that when I am a friend, I'm a really good friend. This almost sounds like a poor pickup line in a bar. No, don't think of the fact that I'm a... No, don't think, it's not that I'm not... It's not that I, don't, don't think about that I'm a bad man. Think of what a, how good I am at being a bad man. That's what you should think about. I mean, that is great. It does make sense in a twisted Middle Eastern sort of way. It makes complete sense. So Herod survives. He basically says, I was a really good friend to him. He's a loser, so I'll be a really good friend to you. This is Washington politics. Is it not? Hey, I'm flipping sides because I like to be with a winner, right? Isn't that genius? Well, here's the thing. So Herod... This is great. Racially, he's an Arab. His family, a couple generations before, they're actually southern Arabs, Idumea, and the Jews conquer them during the Maccabean period, and they force them all to convert. 
This is great. This is, a great, this is an American pull-yourself-up-by-your-own-bootstrap story. So they're actually Arabs. They're not Jews. They get conquered. And then, um, guess what? Becomes, uh, he, becomes, he, you know, he becomes king. So he's racially an Arab. Religiously, he's Jewish because he's forced to be, but he's never a very good Jew. No, he's born Arab. He's a Gentile, for goodness sakes. Right? Isn't this crazy? So King Herod, he's a Gentile. He's an Arab. He's not a Jew. But he's forced to, his family is forced to convert, so he's raised as a Jew. Yeah, it's really, it's really a mix, which sort of tells you then why he, you know, he doesn't feel this compulsion all the time to toe the line. Right? I mean, it makes some sense when you hear this. So he's an Arab, and that's why the Jews hated him, because he's not one of them. He's not a Jew. The king of the Jews is not a Jew. What? How does that work? Okay, so he's racially Arab, religiously Jewish, culturally Greek, because, and you know this famous thing where the Romans conquered the Greeks with armies, and the Greeks conquered the Romans with, with culture, right? This is the great mystery of the Roman and Greek wars. The Romans had better soldiers, the Greek had better culture, so the Romans won, but Greek culture is what survived, okay? Um, the Romans loved the Greeks, they loved the culture, so he's culturally Greek, and politically, he's Roman. Hey, don't think about what a, you know, don't think about whose friend I was. Think of what a good friend I can be. So that's very, very interesting. You good so far? So these are, you can see how, how, I mean, if you had all these people at dinner, at your Christmas dinner, they'd kill each other, which is, in fact, what they do. It does. I, nothing changes, Mary. It is nothing, nothing changes. All I, can, all I can advise you about Christmas is drive your own car so you can leave when you want. That's the only rule about I mean, you're, Rosalie, you're actually flying somewhere. I mean, imagine the risk you're taking. It's not easy or cheap to book a flight. If you said I've had enough, I mean, you can't drive home. It's, this is, I'm very unhappy, I know. This is like, oh, oh boy. Control your own destiny, friends. That's all I can say. At the holidays, control your own destiny. All right, now, one of the earliest phone calls at St. At St. John I ever got was, hey, you've ruined my Christmas. And I was like, I've ruined your, you've ruined our Christmas. I'm like, why did we ruin, your, you've ruined my Christmas. I'm like, why did we ruin, all that stuff about killing those babies. So here's the thing, I don't know, it must have fallen on a Sunday, the 28th of December must have been early. So we celebrated the feast day of the Holy Innocents. And I give you the calendar here. The interesting thing about the church calendar is it doesn't let you have Christmas for very long. Jesus gets born. The very next day is the feast day of St. Stephen, the first martyr. So, if you, so here's what you do. You come to church and you celebrate. If you keep the feast days, you celebrate Christmas. The next day you celebrate that Stephen got stoned to death. The next day you celebrate that John was the only apostle who wasn't martyred, but he got sent to an, he got sent to an island where he just had these completely weird you know, revelations about how the world would end, and the next day, you kill the holy innocents. And then the next day after that, I get a letter that says, hey, you've ruined our, thanks a lot, you've ruined our Christmas. I'm like, it's the church calendar. So what are you going to do with that? So so the question to you is, now why did the the church clergy can arrange the calendar how it wants? Why does it arrange the calendar that way? You can read this. I mean, he's okay by the way, one place he's horrible, he's got a horrible paragraph in there about how location doesn't matter anymore. That's actually, he just had a bad day when he wrote that paragraph. Uh, location is everything. Loca- he, what he should have said, 
is not that location doesn't matter anymore because Jesus is the New Jerusalem. He should say location matters desperately because Jesus is in the Eucharist. That's what he should have said. But he just, what's inter- one of the things about this book now, um, he's an evangelical who studied with Lutherans. So he got his PhD at St. Louis at Concordia Seminary, right? So he's an evangelical. It's very interesting. And so he has a very interesting perspective. And I have great respect for him because he did all this stuff. But what's interesting, he shows the effects of evangelicals who have been in rejection of Catholicism. They miss the richness of the tradition. And so every once in a while you can see like he got so far and then he couldn't make the next step because nobody ever told him that Jesus is in the chalice. And you, you feel sorry for him at that point. He, he writes this paragraph where he ends up about Jesus of the New Jerusalem where you're just like, ah, that's a non sequitur. You need to see what the next step is. But because he didn't ever have the benefit of the church history, one of the great things about Lutherans is you have a Catholic heritage, big C Catholic heritage, which is they kicked us out, you know. But it's still, we still, Luther always said, hey, that's our stuff. You can kick us out if you want, but it's all ours then. We're taking it all with us, Okay. Well, anyway, so you get the church or calendar that looks like this now. How can that be saved? Um, I think the answer is, oh, my gosh, I was supposed to finish five minutes ago. Are they? Get your kids. Okay, good, okay. Just, just bring them in. I'm sorry. I kind of lost where I was. Uh, come on, Isaac. Come on in, buddy. Life's good. Good to see you, man. Come on in. Guys are good. Sorry, I didn't. Just can you roll around a bunch and punch each other for a while, and then we'll, I'll wrap up and we'll. It's all boys, for goodness' sake. Is there like six boys in that room? Really? Okay, never mind. I didn't say that. Don't don't uh, don't punch each other. Hug each other. I guess if that's. I guess I don't know if that's what you if you think that'll work. Sorry. Hey. Here's the, can I tell you something? When I say it, here's the thing, they obey me. Why would, I, why would I say to them something they wouldn't do? Hold hands and say kumbaya. No, they're not going to do that. I want to feel good about myself. I want to feel like they listen to me. Holy cow, man, look at this. How many boys are in that room? Nora, I'm so sad for you. Uh, all right, I mean, the only possibility is in another 12 years, one of them will marry you. But other than that, there's no upside being with these guys right now. Whatever. All right, so I'll just, I, let me just, I'll just, I'll just, here's the thing. Think about the story of the Holy Innocence when somebody says you ruined my, I mean, we should sell, it's a, it's a very interesting day. What it does, it extends the mess of Christmas. So part of the, part of the fun of reading these two chapters is, you see how messy... You want to sit over here, Stefan? You can sit over here, buddy. Come on over here. Come sit here. Soren, I mean. Soren, come sit here. Come on, man. You can sit up front. It's like a box seat. All right. There's popcorn. You're, no, you're not in trouble. Oh, you're my friend. I wanted my friend to come sit with me. Oh, my goodness. See, it was easier when I said punch each other. See, all, you guys all want something else. I know how to work with the people, okay? I know what they need. If you all punch each other now, it'll help your (laughs) self-image. Hey, I know how to deal with boys, okay? There's no... Well, anyway, here's the thing. Christmas comes in this big mess, and you shouldn't think that... It's kumbaya for about one day, okay? And then after that, it's right back to the mess. I would just encourage you to think about 
the story of the Holy Innocence the way you think about the Transfiguration story. We've done that, you know, we've done that a couple times on Sunday. Think about the Transfiguration icon where Jesus comes out of this great burst of where everything is great, so great the disciples want to stay there, and then they have to go back down the mountain, Jesus next day at work, and everything is a mess. There's a kid throwing himself in the fire, and the next person is demon-possessed, and the people die, and it's just a flipping mess. It's the same way with the holy innocence. Jesus comes into this world as the glory of God, as, as the divine in the flesh, but the world is messy, and it stays messy until he fixes it. You got it? And part of the reason this, the, the calendar is constructed this way is that it's so messy. If you follow Jesus, they'll stone you to death. You know, if you follow Jesus, all your friends will get killed and you'll get sent to a desert, deserted island. If you follow Jesus, you know, people kill your children. That's the story. But the thing is then, you know, maybe I have to repent a little bit of my previous aggressor being, being, being you know, it hasn't gotten that bad for us. And part of what you realize is he remains... Um, divine even in those circumstances you know we shouldn't i don't have enough time to do simeon and anna and mary let me give you a couple of things let me just remind you maybe under point seven the whole liturgy directs you to (laughs) and they're running for the doors Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We sing that on the way to the Eucharist. We sing that, Hosanna, Hosanna, the Sanctus. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We sing that because the same... Yeah, he's got a head start. Uh, I I think he got into a cab. Uh, We sing that because we're going up to the Eucharist just like Jesus was going up to the temple. When we get there, we sing the Agnus Dei. Lamb of God, you take away the sin of the world. Lamb of God, you take away the sin of the world. So, Hosanna, 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 up to the Eucharist. We're there, Palm Sunday, we're there. The Agnus Dei, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, John the Baptizer. And when you're done, then we sing the Nunc Dimittis, we go back down. Like Simeon, I can die now. So you see, those three festivals happen while you're going to the Eucharist. You have Palm Sunday, you're part of Palm Sunday, you come to the altar. John the Baptizer, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I must decrease, he must increase. And then, like Simeon, you say, I just saw Jesus in the chalice. That is great, man. I just saw Jesus in the chalice, and now I can die happy, right? Just like those kids outside. Hey, they're all happier than you are. That's why you're jealous, okay? Let's pray and go. We can't otherwise. What I'd love to do is stir them up and then leave. Because here's the thing. I don't know how to, I know how to start them. I don't know how to stop them. Okay, here we go. Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Okay, we're off for a couple of weeks and then we'll come back and we'll do some we'll do something I'll we'll let you know about. Thanks.